Welcome to Exploring Possibilities, a show where we interview a variety of holistic professionals and light workers who are really making a bigger difference in our world. I'm your host, Cheryl Sitz, and it was my purpose in creating this show to introduce you to the incredible people that I'm meeting on my own journey. You'll hear their stories because their stories really are our stories. We'll explore the vast realm of holistic healing and learn how we can co-create holistic sustainability. There's a lot of possibilities out there we don't often hear about, so this is a way we can learn and grow together on this path. Don't hesitate to reach out and connect with anybody you might hear who resonates for you, because we've got a lot of great guests. Special thanks to Mario Rosales of Tech Life Balance. He does a lot of hard work behind the scenes producing these and publishing our podcasts, as well as on our Journey of Possibilities website. He really helps me use technology to make a bigger difference, so I appreciate it very much. I want to remind everybody to be sure and subscribe to our podcast by searching for Exploring Possibilities, either on iTunes if you're an Apple user, or you can download an app called Stitcher if you're on Android or another platform, and just search for Exploring Possibilities and subscribe. That way you'll never miss one of our podcasts because we have such interesting guests. And that's a perfect segue into today's guest. I'm so excited to have with me Alan Davidson, who has a lot of credentials for himself, but basically he really helps people embody their spiritual enlightenment and learn how to uh, work with that within today's marketplace if they are professionals in that industry. And we're going to talk a lot about his gifts and his story. I read about Alan recently in a Huffington Post article, and when I heard his story, I said, you know, I have got to have this guy on the show. Alan, thank you for being willing to join us today, Alan Davidson. Well, thank you very much, Cheryl. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you and your audience, and uh, I'm happy to share what wisdom I can today. Oh, you have such an amazing story, and I always start with the story. A lot of times we can get lost in our stories, so it's kind of an interesting paradigm there, but it is our story that prepares us so perfectly to live our soul purpose, and your story is a rich one. I want to mention your website, throughyourbody.com. That's T-H-R-O-U-G-H, yourbody.com. And Alan, can we start with, um, wow, I don't even want to try and tell anything about your story. I have a feeling that you can do a better job on your own, (laughs) but you started in a really interesting place in the 80s with, uh, well, you tell it. Tell us about how your life prepared you for the path that you're living now and a little bit about your history, would you? Okay, sure. Well, um, so imagine the 1960s and trying to be a gay kid in very rural Texas. Wow. And I spent a lot of time fantasizing and imagining uh, getting as far away from small-town rural Texas as I possibly could. (laughs) And eventually, my family did move to uh, Irving, a big suburb of Dallas, and I began to find at least other you know, gay kids and understand that there was a gay world out there um, that wasn't everything that the conservative Texas church had told me about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But then fast forward to 1981, I moved to Houston to become bartender to the fabulous. And I like to say that in a very long three-day weekend, we had more fun than the entire state of Oklahoma (laughs) in, in a year. No offense to our friends north of the Texas border. But, um, you know, there were about 50 guys that traveled in a huge pack. And 
Um, you know, we went to art openings and movies and concerts and plays and clubs and, you know, just had so much fun, so much joy. But that joy and that that fabulous lifestyle came with a very high price, and that price was HIV-AIDS, which started hitting us and our group in about 1984. And um, when we first learned that AIDS was a virus, I just assumed that I would die a very gruesome, painful, and lonely death because I was an IV drug user, and I had shared needles with men who had already died from AIDS. So I just assumed that I was positive. Right. Wow. And, um, you know, just about that time, I had hit my emotional and spiritual and physical rock bottom and asked a friend to take me to an AA meeting. And I got sober. And so as I began to have some level of hope for at least what was left of my life, I had to decide, Cheryl, am I making short-term plans or am I making long-term plans? And I happened to live with a medical doctor at the time that just saying, Alan, I think you might be negative. You're just too healthy. Mm-hmm. And after hearing him say that over and over and over for six months, I built up the courage to go get one of the very first HIV tests. And miraculously, uh, I was and still am HIV negative. And I knew that I had played Russian roulette with my life. And that divine providence or God or the goddess or however you want to frame the intelligence that moves the created universes, um, I have been spared. I didn't know for what, but I left the Montrose Clinic that day after that HIV test, vowing to quit squandering my talents and gifts and to figure out how to use them in a way that I could help make a difference in my community and in the world. And um, six months later, I found myself in massage school. And that was really the door that opened for me to reclaim my body, to begin this very slow process of opening my heart, to make peace with my mind and allow my spirit to soar and dance the way that it does today. Alan, you know, just backing it up just a little bit, I, too, went through testing and I have a past that involved drugs. And I did not use needles, but I had been intimate with people who had. And so I remember that scare very vividly because it was very real for many of us with not as much risk as you felt like you had. And I remember going and getting that test and then them telling me the waiting period to find out. Those were the longest hours of my life. Right. I know you had to feel that. Yeah, in my day, it was two weeks to wait. Yes. And I remember... After that two weeks going back, you know, and there was even the, you know, that thought of, gee, why go back? It seemed so obvious, you know, why face wow. it? Yeah. But I did go back, and I remember sitting in the lobby of the Montrose Clinic, and the walls just seemed to resonate with the fear of all the other people who had yes. sat in those chairs waiting for the news that they would die. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was scary, a very, very scary time, because there was just so much that wasn't known. But the reality was that there were men dying horrible, painful, gruesome, lonely deaths over and over and over around me. Just literally, I knew hundreds and hundreds of men who died. Wow. And that is not a segment of our society that we have been supportive to in very many ways. I know that that was a lonely path before that scare. 
and to right. go through that, I had support around me. Um, and yeah, it was two weeks for me too, but I really, I, I bring that out now because I want anybody listening to feel the, the transformation that can happen within a two week period of waiting and then finding out you have a second chance at life. And so I, I can definitely understand why that began to send you in a different direction, especially finding out then, wow, I don't have what I thought I had and I'm not going to die the way I thought I was going to die. And watching mm-hmm. this around you, you were instrumental in raising funds to make a difference in the AIDS epidemic, weren't you? Can you, in, in a pretty interesting way, you want to share that? Well, sure. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, going back to being a kid in small town, Texas, I was actually, even though now I am a six foot four and, and quite a boisterous sort of colorful character, <laughs> um, I was actually, you know, very shy and very polite and sort of very reserved. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. You know, good little boy um and was and bullied quite a lot mm-hmm. um but once i you know came out and moved to oakland which is the suburb of dallas that was the gay community back in in 1977 um and started drinking and then eventually found my way to drugs you know the the alcohol and the drugs um, you know, took away that social anxiety and that fear and that deep, deep-seated um, self-hatred yes. that I had um, from, you know, growing up in a culture that said that I was evil and that I should be destroyed. Right. Um, and so through that process of becoming a very colorful person and working in the nightclubs, and there's always lots of opportunities for costumes and parties and <laughs> events, and, um, you know, I'm... And, I've always loved theater. I was in the drama club in high school. So it was a short step to assume a personality named the Passionetta von Climax, which is, as I like to say, <laughs> the largest drag queen in captivity. So imagine a six foot four man in four inch steel reinforced high heels with two wigs on top of his head. <laughs> um, you know, so very, very tall, a huge presence. And, Literally, uh, Passionetta and her troop of friends raised thousands and thousands of dollars for AIDS charities here in Houston. And one of the big events that we used to always do was the Stone Soup Pantry, which is the food pantry for AIDS uh, survivors. And, um, you know, in an afternoon, we would raise three or four pickup trucks full of food for the pantry with our performances. I I believe you. I'm trying to get this visual. And I grew up in the Houston area. And a lot of things don't surprise me anymore because I grew up in the Houston area. But I think that one would still turn my head a couple of times. (laughs) I bet you were grand looking. (laughs) Well, there was a point I was uh, my mechanic, my straight friend, Bobby is my mechanic. And he always and he had a Jeep. And the only way I could get from my home in full costume was to borrow his Jeep with the lid taken off of it. And I had to drive downtown to the nightclub. And he happened to be uh, driving with his girlfriend uh, through downtown. And they saw me and his girlfriend looked at him and said, who the hell is that driving your Jeep? Because there, I guess I had those two wigs all wrapped in a scarf. You know, it was a very Isadora Duncan moment, you know, driving through downtown Houston. <laughs> That's great. You, wow. So 
I don't even know how to go from that to where I wanted to go next in the conversation. But you bring a lot of humor and a lot of lightheartedness to something very serious. I'm sure that was medicinal for people as well, just to be able to laugh and play in that time when there was so much sorrow and angst. And um, so I think that's a beautiful gift that you bring in the form of you. Well, thank you. And I, and I will tell you, um, I, I'm not sure that I believe in reincarnation or karma, but what I can tell you is that as long as I can remember, um, you know, I remember in, in high school when I figured out that I was gay and that there really wasn't a passing phase and that this was who I was. Um, I went through about six weeks of depression and despair and then finally realized, you know, God made me this way and God did not make a mistake. And I don't care what the hell the conservative Christian church has to say about this. They're wrong. And I can't imagine how a kid from rural Texas could come to that place of certainty with that. Now, obviously, I had a lot of issues that were layered on top of that from, you know, growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in our world. But I always, you know, and unfortunately for me, I threw the Christian church um, out the door, you know, I threw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but I always was looking for a spiritual solution, and I turned to the Eastern tradition, um, you know, the, the path of enlightenment. And it took me a long time to come back to what Christ actually taught versus what the Christian church teaches on his behalf. And, um, that's an excellent so distinction, by the way. I mean, you can say that again, what Christ actually taught versus what people are professing. He taught all the interpretations that that was a big profound one for me, too. So please right, go ahead. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same with the Buddha. It's the same with Lao Tzu, the, you know, the author of the Tao Te Ching, you know, even Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama. These, these great, great world teachers have experiences of the mystical um, domains of experience, and then they try to talk about them to people who've never transcended their small mind, their small ego, their small personality. Mm-hmm. And so those small minds have to create doctrines and practices based on what they think these great teachers are saying. Yes. And so my, my path is, you know, life is a mystical, joyful, beautiful, fabulous adventure if you can develop the skill to transcend that small self. And, um, and now, fortunately for us in 2014, there are so many practices that make that, that leap across that Grand Canyon of consciousness from the small ego to this amazing mystical experience of awareness. You don't have to sit in a monastery for 15 years and hope you have an experience anymore. In an hour, with the technologies and the practices we have today, Someone who's never meditated before in their life can have a mystical experience and go, oh, wow, now I know what Jesus was talking about. Now I know what Buddha was talking about. Now I know what Lao Tzu was pointing to in his poetry. Yes, I definitely want to talk to you about that practice because what you just said is the work that you're doing now, and I definitely want to talk about that. I just want to backtrack a little bit and Talk about a book, a best-selling book that you wrote a few years back, Body Brilliance, Mastering Five Vital Body Intelligences. And one of the similarities that I think we 
actually spoke about before this interview that I felt with you is for anyone listening that's thinking, wow, so here's a gay man trying to make peace with that and his body and heal that. This is not, this is a very universal issue. There are many like me who had uh, inappropriate sexual experiences when we were young, from incest to rape to to date rape drugs. There's a lot of issues happening out there that I would say more people than not have body image issues. You know, the cosmetology industry trying to teach us new ways that we're not good enough every day so we can need more and more of their products to try and fit a model that most of our bone structures wouldn't even hold. There's many, many different aspects to this this body image thing. And you really address all of that in your book and in your work. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, sure. Unfortunately, for the last 120, 125 years or so, we, we came out of a long, long period of, for the most part, worldwide body hatred. You know, certainly the Christian tradition has a lot of fear and distrust of the body. You know, the seven deadly sins are based on the different sensations and pleasures of the body. And, you know, again, the Christians threw the baby out with the bathwater and said, oh, the, ba- the body is evil. The pleasures of the body are evil. Um, but even in the mystical traditions, you know, in the Buddhist and the Hindu traditions, there's a lot of body hatred. It's like, you know, transcend, transcend the mind, transcend the ego, transcend the body. Mm-hmm. Even to the point of saying the body isn't real or the three-dimensional time and space isn't real. Right. And um, so fortunately, in the last 120 years, there's been uh, a lot of it to do with some of the Western psychologists, um, you know, coming out of Carl Jung and, uh, you know, some of his students and later practitioners, um, Fritz Perls, uh, the founder of Gestalt Psychotherapy, is a big proponent of coming back to the body and bringing the body in the process of awareness and healing and wholeness and uh, enlightenment. And, uh, and now, uh, even people like, um, Eckhart Tolle are talking about the easiest way to experience the now is to turn inward and experience the inner body, the energy and sensations of, of energy in your body. So, um, we come from, a 2000 years, a legacy of hating the body and denying the body. And I think, you mentioned, you know, like the cosmetology, cosmetology industry. Um, they're they're playing to the fears and the insecurities of the ego mind. Yes. And it's not until we can step out of that and own the beauty and the grace and the righteousness of our physical body, and the wholesomeness of our, I would say, mature pleasures. Um, you know, your body can hold all the possible shame you can dump into it, but it's also capable of all the most ecstatic pleasure and joy and love available in the creative universe. And you get to choose which one you want to to experience and sense day in and day out. That's very powerful. Thank you for stating that. And that's where some of this holistic practice comes in so beneficially is healing and shifting from shame to love. It is a journey and it's, it's a journey I've been on for a few years and there are many modalities out there to help with that. 
I also wanted to go back and mention, if you're thinking that Alan Davidson here sounds pretty smart, well, he is. He's got degrees in psychology, sociology, philosophy, religion. He, he's done a lot of studying to get to this place where he can speak at any level that you want to speak at about the wholeness of these truths. And that's one of the things that's so fun about talking to you, Alan. So thanks for that. You are doing some cutting edge work, bringing together what what is called big mind meditation. You're a big mind meditation facilitator and working with EFT or tapping. Can you speak a little bit about the transformation that you're able to facilitate now for people with that? Well, sure, sure. And uh, I'll tell you, it's my absolute favorite thing to experience. I practice it every morning myself. Um, uh, well, I'd say most mornings, let's put it that way. And uh, it's my favorite thing to share in the world. Um, I remember, well, first, you know, what is big mind meditation? Um, it's, it's sort of uh, a lineage uh, that started with Carl Jung and what he uh, taught at Active Imagination, Fritz Perls, who I mentioned before, um, and the empty chair exercise, uh, Hal and Sidra Stone, uh, Hal is a union analyst, and they created a body of work called Voice Dialogue. Now, most people listening, Cheryl, will have heard of some of these inner voices or inner personalities or sub-personalities. Some of them, like the inner critic is a well-known one, um, or the innocent and vulnerable child, or the golden child, or even the, the wounded self, or uh, Eckhart Tolle calls the pain body. Those are all voices or sub-personalities within us. Have you heard of, uh, of that? Yes, I'm also being reminded of the archetypes that Carolyn Miss, you know, publicized. And, and those are several of those are archetypes that we bring forth in that modality as well. So, yes, I'm very familiar with that. Right. Well, invoice dialogue is the, the process of actually realizing that I can speak to an archetype. I can actually go through a process and sort of differentiate between, you know, the Cheryl that's walking around most of her day concerned about, you know, uh, her appointments and how she looks and how she feels and what's her purpose and all that stuff. And you can distinguish that and you can actually speak to the inner critic. And the inner critic has his or her own perspective on what she should be doing and what's good for her, what's safe for her, what she should stay away from, you know, what kind of world she lives in. And so the idea is to be able to differentiate and distinguish all these other voices and just dialogue and listen to them. Um, it's a very profound process. It sounds um, like and, it. You know, like anyone that's studied Gestalt would remember an exercise of if you've got daddy issues, you're in one chair and there's an empty chair in front of you, and you're supposed to switch and become your daddy. And then you're dialoguing and speaking to that energetic self you left in the chair behind you. That's the empty chair exercise. Um, well, the Zen master, Gimpo Roshi, who's an American Zen master, has a process the opportunity to work with Hal and Sigerstone and watch this in depth and see the power and the impact with it. And the seeds were then planted for um, what would become Big Mind Meditation. And 20 years later, Gimpo realized that not only do we have all these voices of our personality that are rattling around in our brain, you know, creating a cacophony of opinions and ideas of what <laughs> we should and shouldn't be doing, but from what the mystical traditions have taught for 5,000 years, the already always enlightened 
voices are there. The Divine Mother, the Divine Father, the archetypes that you mentioned, all those aspects of consciousness that transcend the little self. And just with a short, short facilitation process, usually within 20 to 40 minutes, anybody can have the experience of Buddha mind, of Satori, of Nirvana, of enlightenment, of, you know, that state that the Dalai Lama sits in, or that state that the Mother Teresa operated in with her magnificent open heart, the divine mother quality. We can experience those ourselves in our body, in our own sensation, and go, wow. And you said everybody can get this. Like you haven't had anybody not be able to get to Nirvana in a 20-minute to 40-minute session with you. I I have facilitated well over a thousand people at this point, and every single person... Um, so far, so far, um, uh, have had the experience. Now, what I have done with my studies with, you know, I mean, I did a year of voice dialogue psychotherapy myself, you know, and I did years of working with a mentor who, uh, she was a body worker, but, you know, with like the voices of resistance and pain in the body, you know, one of those voices trying to tell us. So I was very grounded in that voice dialogue process, and then I met Gimpa Roshi, and even though I had been meditating off and on for over 20 years, I had never had a genuine Satori experience of pure stillness and silence. And the very first time I experienced Big Mind, I went there and I just went, my gosh, this is what I've been looking for all of my life, this place of stillness and transcend the suffering of my ego self. Now, what I do is I've also layered some shadow work and some EFT tapping into that big mind process. I call it enlightened tapping meditation. And the tapping, the EFTP, really helps the voices of the subpersonality relax and let go. And then when you make that leap across that Grand Canyon of consciousness to Satori, Nirvana, enlightenment, Buddha mind, Buddha heart, um, using the tapping then anchors that experience into your connected tissues, into your bones, and into your um, energy field. So when you want to go back, it's uh, it's like just pushing the key on a record player. It's like, oh, I want to have um, Buddha mind, or gee, I want to have Mother Teresa's, you know, wide open heart. Oh, gee, I want to have stillness, and go right back to that place, and you've got the experience of it anchored in your body and your mind, so you can go back with a just snapping with your intention. It's right there. So I can be busy at work and I can bring that back to me? You totally can. You totally can. And it's just, uh, you know, it's like an affirmation that you might say every day, but instead of going to the mirror, just saying, you know, oh, gee, Cheryl, I love you, or gee, Cheryl, I love and appreciate you, or I accept you just as you are, you just say, oh, I am, you know, stillness of pure being. Um you know, which is a, a Buddhist, a Tibetan Buddhist term for the field of energy that supports all the created universes, the stillness of pure being. It's like, I am the stillness of pure being. I am that field that supports all of creation. Um, and so that really is the path of enlightenment is to come back and experience it in the body over and over and over again until it, instead of just a fleeting state of awareness, it becomes an actual stage in your evolutionary development as a human being. Exactly. And so, 
we go through hours of feeling that or days of feeling that or weeks of feeling that voice, that experience, and it becomes our new normal. So playing devil's advocate here, because I have to try and do that sometimes, because we don't have the audience calling in. What I love about this work is that all devils are welcome. Exactly. (laughs) That's funny. So I've done some shamanic work, and I know what it's like to go to that place and then come out of that ceremony and try and integrate that into this busy, often crazy world. And that can be challenging. And I think it's really interesting that you say that we're anchoring it in our body so that we can go back to that at any time. Isn't the real challenge trying to learn how to live that in this world? Or do you see us changing this world to a world we can live that way in? Well, I think both are true, Cheryl. It's like, one, we have to figure out how can I sustain this beautiful state experience of stillness or, you know, a compassion that is, you know, uh, unshakable, uh, inexhaustible capacity for compassion for all the suffering in the world. It's like, okay, gee, I can feel that for two minutes. <laughs> right. um, you know, but then how do we, you know, it, it, I, I, I read the New York Times every day. It's sort of, I make myself read it because there is so much pain in the world. But yes. I want to know what my brothers and sisters are going through and what the insanity of the human race is capable of if we don't find our way out of this. Amen. And so um, the challenge for me is to be able to open my heart to that insanity and in that pain and that suffering and be fully present with it. And that's my practice. So reading the paper for me or watching the evening news for me is a spiritual practice because the minute I say, oh, they shouldn't do that, you know, the the Palestinians shouldn't be, you know, kidnapping and killing Israeli kids or the Israelis shouldn't be bombing, you know, UN centers in Palestine. The minute I start to go to that place of life shouldn't, you shouldn't, it shouldn't, I know that I'm in my personal small mind. And then it's time to shift to a much greater perspective where I can hold all of that insanity from a place of stillness and compassion. So there's that practice there of meeting the world just the way it is. But I also know, and I have the faith, that the more people like you, Cheryl, and the more people that are listening to this interview, and the more people all across the world that are taking on practices like this, and they're moving to that place of transcendence and integration and wholeness and love, that the more of us that do that, we create a tipping point so that the world shifts with us. And the problems that have plagued humanity for the last 5,000 years, they will, they will shift, they will change. Now, we'll, we'll most likely have new problems, <laughs> but, the, but the, the hatred and the poverty and the cruelty and the war that we have now, I believe... Uh, And Ken Wilber, uh, the founder of Integral Theory, has said that if 10% of the world's population moves to this place of enlightenment, that it will create a tipping point that will shift consciousness as we know it on this planet. And right now we're around 3, 3.5, maybe 4% of the world's population at this level of conscious development. And if we can get to 10%, which is about the population of Europe, 
then we can create a, a transformation, a, a cauldron of transformation that will help humanity begin to really grow up and begin to embody what you, I love, you said soul purpose. Um, I think that is every soul's destiny is to embody our soul purpose and to live it wholeheartedly and fully. Um, and if 10% of the world's population are, are embodying our soul purpose, then it will be an extraordinary time of change and transformation. And I don't believe it's if, I believe it's when. I meet people waking up every day and it just excites and thrills me. I believe that we're moving to that place quicker than we think. And this is such a timely interview because Chopra held his worldwide meditation for peace earlier today on the day that we're recording this. And and he had a great tune in and the numbers went up and... I, I do believe it. I believe we're shifting our collective global consciousness in a beautiful way. And we always look for, well, how can I make a bigger difference? We are the bigger difference we need to make. If everybody just takes care of our own little internal work, which is the last place we want to go half the time, <laughs> then we're going to get there. Right. Well, and I, you know, I am a firm believer. So much of the world, you know, I talked about the ego and the small self. You know, the number one way to notice if you're in your small self, your personal self, is if you're looking to the outside world for some level of gratification or satisfaction or peace or anything. So, you know, when we shift that to the internal world of, oh, I must be peace, I must be love, I must be compassion, I must be present, then that's when the dynamics really start to speed up. And if I can embody those qualities of peace and presence, then all of a sudden, um, miracles, mischief, and magic happen, is the way I like to describe it. Because people come into my life where I'm guided to, you know, pick up the phone and reach out and have a conversation with someone, or, um, you know, I'm I find this impulse, this instinct to move someplace, you know, in my day, an extraordinary connection happens. And it's like, I feel like all of a sudden, even though I'm fully present, I feel like I'm dancing with the divine and extraordinary things are happening. But what I also realize is that I'm leading the dance. Yes. And because I am the captain of my own ship, I have embodied those spiritual principles. And as long as I remember to do that and surrender um, and love myself and love my life and love my world, then I am the most potent, the most practical, the most profound I can be minute to minute, breath to breath, day to day. And um, that's how I choose to live my life. Well said. I have to tell you, something's coming up to me. I had a conversation with a young man earlier this week, and he was talking about how, you know, I've gotten into the meditation a bit and some of these practices, but I also am an adrenaline junkie, and I love to have fun and live on the edge, and so I feel like I'm trying to balance two extremes. And it kind of comes up for me because we started our conversation talking about your very colorful past and your very flamboyant alter ego and some of the efforts that you've done to raise money and so forth and make a difference. How do you balance these two different aspects of yourself and allow full expression of yourself to play? Well, so, you know, there's a wonderful quote by Rumi 
And it is, your job is not to search for love, it's to, remem- it's to remove all the blocks you have erected to love. And, you know, the way the world seems to work right now is that babies are born into our world and they get indoctrinated to a set of beliefs and limitations and they're culturized and socialized and yada, yada, yada. And um, we, and from that, we all have our defenses, our complexes, our character issues, um, you know, that we grow up with and that we try to resolve in our adult life. And so some of that, you know, very colorful personality that you talked about was a reaction to, you know, it was that rebellion against that small conservative Texas town that I grew up in. And how can I be the most outrageous <laughs> person to say and point the finger and said, you can't tell me who I'm going to be and who I want to be. Right. But in the bigger spiritual path, now a passionate of on climax is not only a drag queen who raises money for charity for AIDS in the eighties, but a passionate of on climax is a persona that I can slip into and that I can play with and that I can teach from that place and be very entertaining and um, outrageous and say wonderful things where perhaps, you know, the everyday Alma wouldn't have the courage to say. Right. So it becomes a wonderful, skillful tool for teaching and getting attention and spreading a message that is very playful and fun. (laughs) But it's not somebody that I'm trapped in because it's a reaction to my old wounded self. Oh, I love that. That's, That's perfect. Exactly. Our life path prepares us for something bigger down the road as a place that we can relate from and not a place to react from. That's so well right. put. Right. And, you know, Paul, you used to ask the question, Cheryl, that I loved. And I use it with my business clients, and I use it, you know, for myself, and I use it for my, my student, meditation students. And the question that Paul, you would say, if when you're faced with a choice, and you make that choice, what is it in service to? The question is, what is this in service to? And he was always asking, is this in service to your fear and your complex, or it is in service to your opening and your healing and your self-actualization, your self-realization? So that's a great spiritual practice to ask every day. What is this day in service to? Is it in service of more defense and pain and fear, or is it in service to a wholeness and an opening and an embodying joy and playfulness and creativity. That's a perfect way to check in. If we was slow down enough to ask ourselves those questions, that's half the battle, isn't it? Right. Well, and I'm going to circle all the way back around to the body because I know that was something that you liked about my work. Yes. Is, you know, for me, the foundational practice of presence of healing is what I call sense and center. And it's just the capacity to sense my body, to be aware of, oh, gee, what's the pressure against my left little toe? What's the quality of temperature on my right elbow? What's the vibration in my right ear? 
you know, what am I actually sensing in my physical body right now? And so the sensory experience is the body always happens in the present moment. It never happens in the past. It never happens in the future. Your body will never lie to you. Now, your mind can play tricks on you, but the body, if you practice sensing your body second to second to second, it's always shifting and changing. And so that anchoring your attention, your awareness, and the immediate sense of your body, and just being centered, that's a martial arts component of being centered in this, the second chakra, the Dante and Mahara, just below your belly button. That's the gravitational center, the energetic center of your body. So if you combine that sense and center and you're just being present in your body, then that trains me. That was my first real training to be present. And so then questions like, in service to what, comes from that sensory awareness of my body. It helps me decide, is this choice, does it give me fear, does it cause contraction, is it a defense, or is it that, gee, I'm stepping into life. And even though that can be a little anxiety-producing, there is that sense of expansion and openness and pleasure and release. It's like, oh, I am stepping into more of my truth. So enlightenment is a bodily practice, it is a sensory practice, and it is a bodily experience, it's a sensory experience. So claiming and owning and honoring the body, to me, is first and foremost to healing all the wounds that we might have had in our life and stepping into this magnificent life that you're pointing to and our ability to create a future and a world that we all want to live in. I love that. I love how you put all of that. You you have quite a way with words as well. And I actually went through a 10-day Vipassana meditation. And for anyone that wants a deep intro experience into that, it's based on what are you sensing in this moment and now this right. moment. And it was a really nice introduction to the, some of the stuff you're talking about. Right. Well, my, my core somatic body teachers were rigorous uh, Vipassana teachers. And, <laughs> you know, they thought they had found, the, you know, stumbled on it themselves only to learn that paying attention to the body rigorously and in stillness uh, was something the Buddha taught 2,400 years ago. <laughs> and, and it's what become, is what is now known as Vipassana or insight meditation. Wonderful. Well, I want to ask you real quickly to share with us how clients can interact with you. Is this work all done interpersonally live or is, is the, is there access by phone or internet or how can you help people that want to go down this road with you that resonate with your work? Well, I'll say that uh, I'm very proud that my Enlightened Happy Meditation, I back in March, I filmed my home study course, my home training of this, and uh, it'll actually be done in a couple of weeks. So um, if you want to stay in touch with me, go to throughyourbody.com and get on the mailing list. Perfect. Um, you know, and there'll be opportunities to, you know, have live events. I do meditation trainings. I, wherever in the world I'm invited to go, I go. Um, so I, I seem to be going to Boston regularly and San Diego regularly. I've been invited to um, Los Angeles to teach. Um, so wherever I, I'm invited, I go. I teach. I share the work. 
That's so good. The world's becoming smaller every day as this enlightenment movement continues. It is. It is. And and I will, you know, in in support of, you know, my product uh, and training being available, you know, there'll be more, you know, videos, there'll be more calls, there'll be more things available to people. Um, But you can go to my website right now, throughyourbody.com, and do a a search on enlightened tapping. And uh, there's at least an audio on there that you can at least listen to it. You may not get the experience, the magical of sort of having it all explained to you, you know, being in in a group, but um, you'll get a taste for sure. And you are in the Houston area for anyone that wants to come live and you say within 40 minutes, you'll be in Nirvana. Yep. I love what that. I say is that uh, what I say is that in 40 minutes, whether you've meditated ever in your life or not, you can have the same experience that Dalai Lama has when he sits in daily meditation, which is classically they would call that Buddha mind. But another way is just saying it's stillness. It's pure awareness. It's completely transcended the, the, the personality and the ego. Alan, I'm just going to have to come over and experience that with you. I can tell that already. Well, come on down. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, we've been talking to Alan Davidson. Definitely reach out and connect on throughyourbody.com. That'll be on the title as well. Any parting words for us, Alan? Uh, No, no. um, You know, what I would just say is that You know, ask that question every day in service to what? And most of us live um, in a very, very small contained space. Maybe it's a coffin. Maybe it's a basement. Maybe it's a dungeon. Or, you know, maybe even it's in a beautiful mansion. But you are so much more than what you have been led to believe. And that all you have to do is figure out your way of stepping out of that small-mindedness to experience greater and greater levels of yourself. And then you have to bring all of that beautiful new awareness and love and presence back into your body and to own it and integrate it with every gesture and every breath and every thought and every feeling and every choice. And that's the practice of sensation by sensation, moment by moment, breath by breath, enlightening your life and claiming your power and standing in your own spiritual authority. And no matter how intoxicating all the other distractions of the three-dimensional world can be, there is nothing more exciting or profound or satisfying or joyful than that process of figuring out who you are and bringing that back to your body over and over and over again. You said it all. I have nothing else to add to that except thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome, my dear. So take good care. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for asking such great questions (laughs) and blessings to you and your audience and your whole team and crew that are supporting you in this interview and this whole process of of, uh, possibility. Thank you, Alan. Have a wonderful day. Do you have a moving story about your own journey and natural healing path you'd like to share? Drop us a note, info at journeyofpossibilities.com. Until next time, this is Cheryl Sitz reminding you to use your passions and make a bigger difference. Let's co-create holistic sustainability for ourselves 
and for our planet. Namaste. Namaste.